Hey everyone, and welcome back to season three of Everyday Theology. We're super stoked to be back, to have a great lineup of guests, some people really excited to talk with. And when I say we, if you're a follower of Everyday Theology, if you listen to our teasers, you know that by we I mean I've got a new co-host, and that co-host is Chris Green. He's going to be joining me for season three to be a consistent voice in having these conversations. He's brilliant. He's one of my favorite dialogue partners and all things theological. And so I'm excited to have him join me as we engage with some theologians, with some pastors, with some people in other disciplines and other fields, some creatives and thinkers. We're just real excited about having some great conversations, thinking about how theology engages with our everyday life. You might also notice that the podcast look longer this season, and it's not because the the interviews are any longer than they have been in the past, but actually Chris and I have taken the time to just have some separate kind of conversations outside of our interviews. That could be conversations about something that happened in the podcast. It might be about a movie. It might be about art. It might be just about kind of pop Christian culture. Who knows? Chris and I, we... we talk a lot and we can engage in a lot of conversations in thinking about kind of our church world and our theological world and kind of what's going on. So we invite you to kind of stick around and just hear those conversations. They're a bit more open and a bit more conversational as it's just me and him having conversations, sometimes disagreeing, sometimes agreeing, joking around and having fun as we are kind of in season three together. So I'm hoping that we hope that you're going to enjoy this season. We've had so much fun recording it so far, and we're just so excited to be back and to be with you again. So welcome and join along as we explore in season three of Everyday Theology. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. Today, we're just having a conversation, me and Chris, I think, We've had some incredible guests so far this season. We've got a lot more to come, but there's sometimes where Chris and I just like to chat. And I think this time we want to have a little bit, a little bit of a longer conversation, if I can get that out there and uh, just discuss some things that we've been kind of thinking about and even maybe kind of going over some of the topics, maybe as a recap from the things that we've talked about for the season. But Chris, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, I think. How about you? All in oh, all? I don't know if I like the I think part to the end, but, you know, sometimes that's the best we got, right? Well, I it's think. like, you know, the church, the people I went to church with, like when I was a kid, they would always say things like, Lord willing at the end, or oh, yeah. God knows. Like there were all these kind of qualifi- qualifiers at the end of the sentence. <laughs> right. Um, right. And that that's i've developed that habit as i get older that that surfaces in me oh all the ways that we kind of get a little messed up by the church you know yeah well by by people we just those of us who arrange raised in church we get messed up by those people if you're raised outside of church you get messed up by other people so it's church people have their own particular way yeah you're gonna get you're not going to live in this world without getting messed up. It's just, um, which gets us partially into what we will talk about after the main <laughs> subject of you don't make up your mind as much as you think. Uh, yep. and a lot of it's more influence, but before we get there and to answer your question, doing well, we're Good. recording this, uh, today 
jumping on a plane six o'clock in the morning, going to Charleston, finally getting a little bit of a break. So ask me that question again in about four days and it might be a little bit different than today. We'll do. Yeah. yeah. Here's hoping it is in a good, in a good way. I think, I think so. Not that anything's been bad, but you know, when yeah. you can put, when you can put your email responder to say, I will not answer your email. It's a good day, right? It is. Hey, so today I thought before we get into the whole recapping some of those themes, especially that you don't change your mind as much as you think, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the times, especially given teaching theology, being in academia for a while, and I'm sure you know this even more than I do, you know, you know, there's those like moments where you're having a conversation with someone and you get blindsided by a question and you're like, oh, I forget sometimes, and this sounds real like elitist D-bag of me, but like, I, I sometimes forget that these are the conversations that some people are having yeah. that I haven't thought about in a long time, or it's mm-hmm. just been so, I don't know, discussed ad nauseum that I stopped thinking about it. Right. 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 right and right. so today I was in a conversation and uh, with someone who's an incredible thinker, incredible person, but lives maybe not in the theological world like I do. Mm-hmm. And they basically said, Hey, what do you think about this whole critique of TD Jakes? And that uh, people are critiquing him as being a monist. And it kind of like threw me back a second. And I said, wait a second. Like, as far as I know, you know, and to explain that to some people, monism, this idea, uh, we might call it oneness Pentecostalism in some circles, this idea that uh, God is only expressed through the person of Jesus, right? He's the only, there is no tripartite idea of God. It's just God is Jesus and that's it. Right. Um, and that's a really a simplification of monism, but helps us move forward. And I, I kind of got kind of stepped back for a second and I thought to myself, well, no, he's not, you know, I think that's a, a poor critique of TD Jakes because I don't think he would ever proclaim to be oneness. And maybe I'm wrong, but I, I just don't see that from him. And, but it did remind me of kind of a state where evangelicalism, even if it's charismatic or Pentecostal, Pentecostalism, I know it's separate from evangelical, but any of those kind of realms, it did remind me of something to to describe. And and I'm going to tell you what I told him. And then you maybe bounce off of that, critique me, you know, and let that kind of start the conversation. But essentially I said, no, I don't think he is in doctrine, but maybe in practice. Mm. And what I meant by that was, I think from, if we take a survey, and in fact, there was a dissertation written uh, a few years ago that looked particularly at Hillsong in this reality, you know, decompressing a lot of Hillsong's music and saying, okay, what is the major crux of the idea that Hillsong is giving through their music? We can look at pastors preaching and say, when we talk about the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where is it the weight and the majority of the discussion being placed? And I think for evangelicalism, and then what we might call kind of normalized Pentecostalism, right? Pentecostalism hmm. that we don't, we don't kind of prioritize the expressions of the Spirit or the work of the Spirit much anymore. And maybe sometimes... 
as I noticed at one nondescript denominational church that if there's going to be anything Holy spirit, it's on like a Tuesday evening and it's a special service that happens once every six months. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's it. We're going to relegate the spirit to the side. And so my response was, again, I don't think he is in doctrine. I don't think he's a oneness person. I don't think he proclaims that the Godhead exists only as Jesus. But I do think it's really easy for us to look at evangelicalism, Pentecostalism, and the shape of our music, our worship music, the shape of uh, kind of what is normal, what's become kind of prioritized within megachurch cultures, to recognize that the force and weight of what everyone talks about is the person of Jesus to the detriment of, the, of, of God and to the, and to the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that we, we spend so much time focusing on Jesus that we actually diminish the work of God and spirit, or we just kind of do that terrible assumption that when I say Jesus, well, I really mean all three, right? Well, no, no, that's not great either. And so I, I feel like maybe the response to that is to say, one of the things that we're lacking within our church culture, within the U S particularly but then to narrow that down even further, evangelicalism and mega church culture is robust Trinitarian thought from the pulpit. Doesn't necessarily need to be preached as Trinitarian, like robust theology, but a consistent reminder that when we're talking about God, we're talking about something more complex than can be just named by one name. Right. And we lose out on, on the person of God and the person of the spirit, because we just always compress this down into the person of Jesus. Am I wrong? Right. How would you? Oh, so, 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 so many things I, I want to, I don't know if we can, we're, no matter how long we talk, we won't right. cover it all. Uh, so just a couple of footnotes. I, I think the question is out on kind of where T.D. Jakes is doctrinally. I know that he was, at least for a time, a oneness Pentecostal. I mean, I, I think that's where he, where his roots are, are in oneness Pentecostalism. I know, I don't, I never saw it, but I know I heard that there was some conversation, maybe you saw, I think it was with Mark Driscoll about the Trinity. There was some kind of like YouTube event where it was T.D. Jakes and I, I think it was Mark Driscoll and Matt Chandler talking about the Trinity. Hmm. I know that I've been at conferences with Jakes and heard people ask him about it. And what I've always heard him say, so I'm, I'm not claiming to be an expert here right. on what his views are. But what I've heard, what I've been in the room to hear him say is something along the lines of, I think that most of these disagreements are semantic that mm. we're, we're talking past each other, that the crucial thing is that we believe that Jesus is God and that God is father, son, and spirit. And once we get past that, we're into mystery and we're, we're probably not disagreeing so much as using different terms for the same reality, hmm. something to that effect. Right. So kind of, um, almost the argument mean, that it's too complex to really understand. So, yeah, I mean, certainly. I, and I think that many, many, many people hold to that view. I mean, part of that, the weirdness of all this is it's only a certain group 
of evangelicals who would even care about Trinitarian orthodoxy at all. And that if I'm right in remembering that it was Mark Driscoll, that's just hilarious to me, right? Right. That he's going, that somehow he's the doctrine police for, for TD Jakes. And and maybe I miss, maybe I misremember that. So, you know, I, 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 I didn't watch it. I just remember hearing people. I think I remember hearing people talk about, talk about the event. I think, so my my account of it is I talking about our circle so broadly evangelicalism in America white evangelicalism in particular and Pentecostalism which overlaps with white evangelicalism it's not simply identical but there's a lot of overlap there right I I tend to think that for the most part people have no coherent theological beliefs they have a lot of incoherent beliefs that are kind of kept in the trunk of their car, so to speak. Right. So I had a friend really, really optimistic there of you, Chris. <laughs> right. No. Not, yeah. I, I don't, but I completely agree. So, uh, yeah, we're, I guess we're both a little pessimistic there. I, and I don't mean this in some mean spirit or condescending. Right. I really don't. Oh, right. It's, it's just a, it's just not work that we feel is important. It's not work worth doing. And we believe whatever we need to believe to talk about whatever the issue is that's right in front of us to talk about. Right. So, and it, the image that I was going to use, I had a, I had a friend in college. He's still a friend now, but met him in college. And we, everybody in the college would joke about how, like, if you open the trunk of his car, there were 20 things in there that you would never have imagined could be in that mm. trunk. So there were thousands of items in this trunk, Yeah, but there were no matter. And they, and they were always changing somehow, but like whenever you opened it, Oh, you, I didn't expect to see, Oh, here's a bag of fish gills. Like, why do you have a bag of fish gills in the, <laughs> and Oh, and look, there are mismatched rain boots. Why do you have mismatch and, and so on? Like, right. It was always like that. Right. And it became kind of a, you know, this kind of running joke of what would you find in the trunk of his car this week? Right. If you opened it, that's how I think theology works for most of the people in most of the churches in our circles. And I mm-hmm. mean, including the pastors, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's it really is a a kind of carnivalesque incoherence, right? You, you whatever you're talking about, if you're talking about gender and sexuality, they're going to be holding to certain these beliefs this way. If you shift the conversation to talk about war and violence, then the whole theological framework will shift to address that. If you're talking about poverty and income and tithing, then the whole system changes again. Like there's no consistency across right. issues, right? They believe whatever they need to believe in the particular moment to say the thing they want to say about that. Can right? I give like the best example? I think we yeah, just please, 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 please. Yep. And, and this is just that kind of logical in, incoherency, the using the language as it's necessary in the moment. Yep. Very much. I mean, if anyone's paying attention to social media, it's kind of died down a bit now, but it was a really big thing for a moment. The uh, proclamation of my body, my choice, as it relates to the vaccine. And the same people who would use that, that phrase to say, you can't force me to put this vaccine in my body. It's my body. It's my choice is the same exact group of people that would use that proclamation uh, or, or would push back against that proclamation for anyone who might use it to be pro choice. Right. No. 
Yeah. And, and the logical inconsistency there, no matter how they tried to couch it, well, that one has to do with another living thing, right? Because clearly their logic can't deal with the fact that someone else's logic is different, right? Like they just, yeah. they can't, they can't fathom it, right? Mm. So yeah, that, that logical inconsistency is probably one of the things that drives me the most mad, right? Well, like, well it is, it, it is quite literally maddening and, and in that it's, it's a kind of incoherence that makes thinking and talking impossible. Yeah. Like it, it, it's, there's no, it, it's, it is quite literally insane. And so there's no way to have meaningful dialogue right. around it because the terms, there's no, there's a lack of coherence, right? The, there, the integrity of the conversation breaks down and I think that's true even when it comes to talking about Jesus. So, for instance, yeah. I do think there's a way in which, depending on what the issue is, many people in our churches do focus on Jesus in a way that ignores Jesus' relation to the Father or Jesus' relationship right. to the Spirit. You know, one of the ways of talking about that, and I wrote a piece years ago about the difference between Jesus' sanity and Christianity, right? And Jesus' and, and that those terms are not original to me. But there is a way of kind of, and this this can happen in different communities in different ways, but you can kind of focus on Jesus and forget that Jesus has a relation to the Father and a relation to the Spirit. And that it is, for Christians, the triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit that we worship, not just Jesus in isolation from Father and Spirit. And, and, that, right. and that can happen, but not not in any kind of coherent way, right? So for instance, in other conversations, there's a hard shift away from Jesus, right? So often, I'll I'll give you an example. I've probably brought this up before, but a couple of years ago, there was a discussion. um, I don't know. It was, might've been longer than a few years ago, but it was in the aftermath of a police shooting. I can't remember which one. And there was this kind of dust up, uh, amongst Church of God ministers, Pentecostal ministers, about rioting and protests and so on and so forth. And one of my students, who happens to be a black man and also ordained in the Church of God, kind of waded into that conversation. That's how I got mm. drawn because he brought me yeah. up. <laughs> he brought me up in the conversation. And I, so I all of a sudden I kind of find myself with in this conversation with a bunch of folks who are kind of coming after this student of mine. Uh, around this issue and he he's as i had told him to do in class uh, talking about these issues he's bringing up parts of jesus life and jesus teaching and so on yeah and there was a denominational leader like so not just you know some rando on facebook i mean this this guy is one of the 10 or 12 most influential leaders in that denomination he says to my student with you know in the in the thread, he says, "You can't just bring Jesus up like that. We believe the whole Bible, <laughs> not just Jesus." And oh in this and in this case, and in this case, Romans thirteen is the deciding text, not what Jesus says. Right. So, in other contexts, I have no doubt that that same person would emphasize Jesus. So, I would would talk about Jesus in ways that kind of lost sight of 
the spirit or lost sight right. of the incomprehensibility of God or lost, you know, whatever the case might be. But in that particular conversation, Jesus is just one voice among many, right? Like, and, right. and not the most important voice, right? It's like, right. shut up for a moment. Jesus, Paul is talking, right? Yeah. It's that kind of, and so, and, and that's the kind of incoherence I, I mean, right? Another way of talking about the same thing is most of the Pentecostals I grew up with in most conversations had a kind of absurd view of Jesus' humanity in which they wanted to emphasize his divinity at Christmas and Good Friday and Easter, but they wanted to emphasize his humanity between that time. Hmm. So they needed it to be God in the cradle and God on the cross. Right. But they needed to downplay his divinity when he's walking on the water, when he's performing miracles, when he's, you know, casting out demons or whatever, because in that particular model, Jesus is the model, right? Jesus yeah. is the one who shows us what it means to live a spirit led life. So everything that Jesus did, he did as a human being in faith and I can do it yeah, as a human being in faith. Right. So depending on what the issue was, if we're talking about salvation, then the emphasis is Jesus is God and I'm not, but right. if we're talking about ministry, well then Jesus is another man led by the spirit, just like I am. And probably nothing, nothing is worse than using Jesus when it comes to social justice issues. And right. And when it right, shifts right. to politics, Jesus mm -hmm. is the last person we should be letting talk, right? The Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do right. with what we're going to do at the border or what we're going to do with violent offenders or what we're going to do with police officers, right? Jesus doesn't get a say on that at all, right? No. So and another way of thinking about this is that in terms of Jesus' life, the, the folks that I grew up around, they always, they loved when Jesus performed miracles, but they wanted no part of any of Jesus' teachings, Hmm. Yeah. Right. And that can, mm -hmm. that can also reverse. Right. So famously like Thomas Jefferson has a, Je a so-called Jefferson Bible that he edited down, took out all the stuff that he thought the church had made up to, and tried to get back to the real historical Jesus. And essentially what he kept were, were the teachings of Jesus that he thought were sane. And he cut out all the miracle bits because right. he thought that was obviously the church making up stuff because miracles don't happen. Right. So all of that is right. Just, stripping Jesus down to size, right? Letting, right. Let, making sure that Jesus looks like me and sounds like me. And so I, I think, yes, in general, we do have a problem with, I mean, we have a deep problem with our doctrine of God, but I don't think it's a, like a coherent one. Like there isn't one that we could address. It's, it's, it's utterly incoherent and random. So the doctrine of God, the problem with it is shifting issue to issue, to issue, to issue. It, yeah. it kind of doesn't matter. Um, what somebody has said about God as it relates to, say, hell, what they're going to say about God as it relates to sickness is something utterly, entirely different. And yeah. it's it's the consequence, the long, what, what, what's happening is we're reaping the harvest of generations of bad teaching. Like yeah. we, we've gone for generations thinking that's not, it's not really important to do theology. And, well, and, and, and we've, we're there. Right. And we've never taught in churches logical consistency in our beliefs. Oh, my right? gosh. Yeah. And, well, we don't value. We don't value. We, we value what works. Yeah. And I think and that's that's, that's kind of the irony of the church of the 21st century, especially the white evangelical church of the 21st century, is because early on in the 21st century, 
nothing could have been worse than postmodernism and clearly nothing could be worse than relativism. Yep. Right. Like those were the biggest enemies to the church and total um, truth being kind of this thing that can morph however it's seen fit. And yet we use that exact thing in the church today. However, it sees, however we see fit though, we'll often just say, but that's not the Bible. Right. So we'll always kind of go back to the Bible as the proof text of why I can be logically inconsistent because I don't need to read the Bible in any kind of logical consistency or put it into conversation. Right. I just need a proof text, a, a verse or two. Yeah. And I, I, I do, I think one way of talking about this is, Another way of talking about this is that it's it's not so much it's not only a failure of logic like it's not it's not merely right. a kind of philosophical incoherence although that certainly is true it's more problematic it's it's a sense in we have this sense I think many of us do at least that the truth is whatever I make it to be at any given moment. Now we would never say that, right? We, we frame it as relativism, postmodernism, right. you know, that we believe in objective truth, but that, that shift that you're describing here, where we kind of go from the fear of relativism, the, the insistence that character matters to, you know, dramatic moves away from that. It's, it shouldn't surprise us because no. what motivated much of that insistence on certainty, on foundationalism, on inerrancy, like what motivated all of that was grasping for a certain kind of control. Right. What mattered was the control. Those were perceived to be ways of getting control. But it was pretty obvious even then, I think, that what mattered was the control. So or power, when those right? things are yeah. no longer useful, right? That's what I mean. Yeah. The power you need to control what you want to yeah. control. Power. Yeah, exactly. So if those things don't work anymore, so shift. Shift right? Like, it, right? Yeah. Because what matters is the control, right? What matters is the sense of, of mastery, the sense of being in control, which power gives you and in control of those things that, that you think, have to be controlled in order to be kept safe and prosperous, et cetera. And that, I think that's the, that's a basic problem yeah. that's deeper than just like philosophical inconsistency. Like right. that's a, that's a spiritual brokenness, right? A spiritual yeah. disease. Yeah. The, the need for power wherever one can grasp at it, right. Or whatever language needs to be used, whatever logic in the moment has to be used. And that's the, that's one of the scary things with the biblical text in proof texting it, which so many people often do and not knowing it is that you can easily force the Bible to create this monster, right? Or to not, not I mean, to be used by the monster, right? To, to however it seems fit. And that way is controlling. I, I, I think about the, uh, the book of Eli. You remember that movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, there, there is a famous line that the protagonist kind of gives that basically, you know, I don't not can't quote it verbatim, but he's real upset about not having the Bible. And you when know. someone says it's just a book, it's just like any other book. And, you know, he retorts back very angrily. It's not just any other book. It's been the rise and fall of nations. It's been the use, the way of controlling people for thousands of years. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, because 
we can use it for power now. Yeah. And, and I think the, the point there is to circle back on what we said right at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah. We can use anything we want, right? I mean, the Bible, insofar as people believe certain things about the Bible, I can leverage those beliefs to get what I want. Right. But the fact of the matter is, if they shift away from that, if they shift to something else, well, not, I mean, if I still want control, all I have to do is just shift to whatever it is that has power with them now. Like it's like the, the problem is never as simple as, well, if you could just get rid of the Bible, then you would right. get rid of these abusive leverages. This is why, you know, a lot of the new atheist stuff, the, the Sam Harris's and Daniel Dennett's and Christopher Hitchens, like all that kind of stuff at its best, it was a good challenge at its worst. It was just kind of a facile, um, naive assumption that if we could just get rid of this particular form of evangelicalism, we wouldn't have terrorism, right? We wouldn't right. have, right? I mean, that's silly. Like again, and I and I I'll, I agree with much of their critique of contemporary evangelicalism, but. The fact of the matter is, if it weren't that, it would be something else. I mean, right, that's, right. And, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't confront those things. We should, but we can't be be naive about what would replace it. This is, I don't know if you saw Midnight Mass on, on Netflix show. I haven't, um, no. Uh-uh. It's, it's a horror show. Mm, that is not my type of show. It's not my type of show either. <laughs> it's not my type of show either. But it's, it's definitely worth watch because it's a it's a kind of critique of Christianity and religion yeah. and a, as a horror show. And it's a little too on the nose and it's a little too obvious. And I think in part because it's driven by this kind of assumption that if we could just get rid of the drive for certainty or the doctrine of inerrancy or right. – Whatever. And again, much of that, I mean, I do think there's a drive for certainty that needs to be confronted. And much of what happens with the doctrine of inerrancy is just about leveraging control over people's bodies and minds. Absolutely. But don't kid yourself. If it's not that, there would be something else that would be leveraged against us. And we we can't afford to ever kind of let our guard down or be naive about, about what needs to be confronted. So let me, let me kind of bring us back back to the original question and maybe I'll say summarize and make sure I summarize this correctly. Kind of our, our I, cause I think both of our positions or both of our, they're not even positions, both of our thoughts on this kind of are hand in hand. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to kind of restate my thought was, you know, we've overly focused on Jesus as the person to the detriment of the Godhead, because we don't understand and kind of what you said first about T.D. Jakes, you know, there is the almost the argument of it's too complex anyway, so there's nothing we can do about it. Yep. So let's stop fighting about it. But then there's the other more uh, problematic, maybe, or, you know, kind of I, to use this word here, I think sinful kind of orientation of, of how we think about our theology, especially in light of the Trinity, it's whatever one works best at the time for the power and control that we need, or to have the group of people that sit in the pews and to get the money in the plates, you know, that is the one that's going to be used in the moment. That's right. Right. That's right. And I, 
you know, the, my gut initial instinct, especially because we've already brought him up is someone like Mark Driscoll who used that very thought as a weapon, right? Like he used the idea of don't let your theological position be influenced by culture or influenced by TV or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the Bible should be offensive. And I'm going to just tell you how, how it is because you should be offended by it. Right. And so it almost became a weapon to say, well, look, I'm the person who doesn't do that. I'm the person who doesn't use this for, I don't care if you come to this church, I'm just going to tell you the truth. But in reality, that exact tool is what grew that church. And if that tool didn't work to grow that church, he wouldn't have used that. He wouldn't have used it. That's, that's precisely right. That's precisely right. And and I I think we need a kind of grade here, like a, a spectrum. Like I think there are folks like Driscoll who strike me as kind of, for lack of a better words, just cynical operators right there. Mm. It's, it's pretty hard not to think they're just doing whatever they have to do to make money. Right. Or to get attention or whatever. But I think there are actually only a few of those folks, right? Like what you have a lot of though, are people who are confused by that into imitating it. Hmm. And I think there are a ton of those people who Hmm. are, it's not cynical. It's not, it's not some kind of seared conscience. I'll do and say whatever I have to do to make it work. Right. But a kind of fear that I have to make this work. Like, right. Quite, quite literally my, my family's future depends on me getting paid to do this job a particular way or except, or in even more, maybe even more frightening sense, their sense of identity is tied to, how large their church is or how many places they get invited to speak or, you know, their reputation amongst other ministers, like that kind of the ways in which I think you see this in other fields, you know, uh, acting or music, the ways in which we we talk about artists that sell out. Hmm, Yeah. Why, why do they sell out? Because they're under pressure, right? They're under pressure to, to make a certain account of money or to fit in a certain ring of friendships. And so they end up doing things that aren't true to who they are because they have to make ends meet or they have to meet these expectations or they feel they must. Right. And I, I I think it's the same kind of dynamics for, for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people in a, a lot of our churches, they're just, they're under a lot of pressure. And so they end up imitating the people who are doing things that seem to work. Right. right? And even more. So if you've got kind of the outlying cynical operators and you've got a bunch of people who are just panicked and trying not to screw up. And so they're grasping for what will work. I think you have a whole lot more people even than them who know something about that is off. They know that that's not right. I mean, they can Hmm. see what that, what's happening and they don't want to do that, but what are the viable alternatives, right? Like what, what do you do if you don't do that? And I think there are a vast majority of people who are in that place of, okay, that's wrong. So what are my alternatives, right? Like what can I actually, actually do? And I think part of the reason we're there, just, this is just part of it, but one of the reasons we're there is that we've actually taken away the the practices, the beliefs, the sensibilities necessary for deep formation. 
Yeah. Like we've, we've thrown away all the stuff we actually need to form people in, in, in depth. And, and that's why even the people who would want that, even the people who are saying, listen, no, I'm up for it. Show me, I want to be deeply formed. Where do we even start, right? Our schools are orchestrated away from that. Our churches are orchestrated away from that. Like there's, there's not a kind there, there rarely are there places where there's the infrastructure you need to have the conversations, to spend the kind of time to read as carefully as you need to read to do the kind of formation you and I are talking about theological, spiritual, pastoral, philosophical, et cetera. Like we, we just don't do that kind of work and we haven't done it for generations, right? For generations, we've said yeah. that doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah. I, I was or just or, reading, at, or yeah. worse, maybe it's not even that it doesn't even matter. Maybe the way that I was raised in kind of Pentecostalism that those, you know, liturgical yeah. practices that are meant for deep formation of the person mm-hmm. were criticized as being regurgitative, repetitive statements of religiosity yep. versus spiritual formation, which is the, the one of the greatest ironies in my own personal life is that now I've found those liturgical spaces as what they were always. Absolutely. What I did not, I, I didn't know because I was always told that's dead, we're alive, realizing that the formation actually has brought more life, that liturgical formation uh, in this season than that charismatic practice ever did in that season. Yeah. Right? Um, Absolutely. So I, you know, again, I don't want to couch this as just T.D. Jakes because I'm always about wanting to give the benefit of the doubt, but we're using kind of this moment and these two things that we've been discussing. So on one hand, maybe at best, we can say, if we go back to the question of, is he a monist? Is he a oneness Pentecostal? Does he believe in and and our non-Trinitarian <laughs> theology? And maybe at best we can say, ignorantly so. And not that he's ignorant, but just that the language, the practices, the things that he says at the time, he says them are not within that thoughtful experience of does this really convey what it needs to convey about the Trinity? Well, but at, yes. at worst, we can say when it suits him to build what he wants to build. Yeah. I mean, my, I, maybe, maybe, I mean, I, the thing about Jake's and I don't know him personally. And maybe, we, a, maybe Jake's is just not the part. Maybe we should kind of nondescript and say, yeah. you know, typical, because I don't, yeah, I also don't want to frame it on him because I think it would be unfair. Yeah, yeah, I, no, I hear you. You know, I hear you. I think, but he's, but he's someone everybody knows, and so it's worth reflecting on. I think, I don't think it's necessarily that he might not have thought about it, or that he might be steering around it. It may be that in those particular conversations he had the wherewith. So if, if I'm right, that it was Driscoll and Chandler or, and certainly in the settings where I was there with him, it might've just been a little bit of harmless as doves, cunning as serpents. Like he knew the people he was engaging, didn't know enough to have the conversation. And this is another layer to this problem here. Right. Right. In that, the people most in in our churches, the people most likely to call someone else a heretic, 
have no business talking about doctrine <laughs> at all, right? They don't know. I mean, I, I've yeah. said this, you know, and you and I have talked about this before, but the, the fact of the matter is in our churches, you can count on one hand the people who know enough about Christian doctrine to, to even understand what a heresy would be, like what they believe, virtually everything they believe, everything in that trunk of theirs, all those bizarre beliefs is heretical or heretical, and, right? And it, and it always seems to me, maybe you, you tell me if this is wrong, but it always seems to me that those who have enough knowledge that maybe they could proclaim heresy they wouldn't. are the least ones to ever That's do exactly it. Exactly right. right. That's exactly right. Precisely because you understand, if you know enough, you understand that heresy does not mean, because to be, to be really blunt, like in our circles, when somebody throws out the word heresy, what they really mean is one of two things or, or both. They either mean you're saying something that's going to lead me to think you aren't voting Republican. That's what <laughs> oh, the word gosh. heresy means. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It really reduces to some version of you're on the wrong side politically. That's what that right. means. Or it just means and or it just means I've never heard that before and it makes me feel funny. Hmm. Like that, that's what heresy is for 99% of the time when that gets brought up in our circles, heresy just means I'm not familiar with that. And it gives me a funny feeling. And I suspect it means that you vote something other than Republican. Right. Right. But that's a very, that's not a church wide problem. That's like a very specific subgroup. There are a bunch of people in that subgroup, but it right. is a very much a subgroup. Right. And they don't know enough about Christian I mean, the doctrine of God or doctrine of scripture, or doctrine of angels or anything like any doctrine to be talking about someone else's view as heresy anyway. And like you said, people who would know enough, who, who've spent the time, been in the conversations, they've been shaped deeply enough that you don't you wouldn't throw out terms like that for everything that's different. Right. Um, so that's, sure. that's part of what we're we're up against here is just that. We're we're inhabiting a a subgroup of Christianity where careful thought, generous thought, you know, care for your neighbor is pretty rare because right. of the and and I think a lot of that has to do with and I mean it, it's a big problem. I don't mean to to boil it down to one thing, but some of it is that's what happens when you're fighting culture wars all the time. Like you you. You lose patience, you lose playfulness, you lose generosity and hospitality and every single, con you know, if we could put it this way, my wife and I were listening to a lecture earlier today by a child psychologist and he was talking about like when a child, when speaking neurologically, when a child is in fight or flight mode, when that part of their brain has been, has lit up and they're, they're driven by such primal fears that they're either going to fight or flee. Yeah. You, you can't like teach them life, life lessons. You can't no. have, you can't reflect on how wonderful it was when you went to Disney together. Right. I mean, it's they're they're in evolutionary preservation mode. Right. And when you fight culture wars, you are essentially pushing people, their spirits into that part of the brain where they're in everything that happens is fight or flight. Everything that happens is life or death. And every disagreement is code for the ultimate disagreement. Yeah. 
And under those conditions, you can't do any kind of careful thinking. You can't do any kind of listening and attending to difference and noticing nuance, right? You don't have time for that because it's, you, you feel literally threatened at the most fundamental level. And until we change that, the work where you and I are talking about is just impossible. Like nobody right. can do that kind of work under these conditions. And to this other point, this other thing that we were going to kind of recap, that very thing, that very moment is more formative to what someone thinks than a rational decision of I've weighed these two options and this one is the logical one, you know, experientially, whatever else we're going to add into it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, their minds are made up for them by the, the panic, right. By the, by the fear, the dread. Um, Which, which is an interesting question. So, we talk, we've talked a lot about this. And, and the reason why I wanted to recap it or bring it back up is because I was posed this interesting question. I was having a conversation, someone listened to the podcast, wanted to talk about it and said, well, the way that you two talk about the fact that your mind is kind of, there are more external forces to how our minds are shaped than we often give recognition to. And we often overemphasize our own power in making up our minds in our own ways. Yeah. But does this not get us scarily close to some kind of determinism to which we don't have any choice any longer and it's all made up for us? No, not, no, no. Even, even so it wouldn't be like determinism, at least if they're using the term in any kind of, philosophical sense determinism would be there isn't a capacity for mm, okay choice, right that yep. the conditions are such that i mean it's determined for you right there there is no possibility what we're saying might lead people to despair but not determinism it might lead to um uh, almost nihilism in that mm. we think yes people have the capacity but they won't they won't do it, right? They they lack the courage. They lack the wherewithal, the, the possibilities created for them by others. I mean, so I think the risk for us, what we're talking about here, the risk is not determinism. The risk is nihilism. The risk mm, is yeah, yeah, or, or or worse, the risk is hopelessness and despair. That not that people couldn't do that, but they wouldn't. That people are so bad or so stupid or so lazy that they wouldn't or people are failed so badly by people in power that they wouldn't do the choice right yeah so i mean i i don't think honestly i don't think determinism philosophically i don't think determinism is really a serious critique the, the human consciousness is just too dynamic for determinism to really have any weight philosophically but nihilism and despair and the the agony of human frailty absolutely i think that's very real and a very yeah. real temptation well and and you know so much of that kind of idea of it can lead to despair you know I, again i think that's kind of yeah it really is hard once you start to recognize how how influenced you are in the way that you think by outside forces. And you once you start to find and recognize those things, I think it can definitely lead to nihilism because you recognize how little how little say you really had in the matter. 
right? But I think there's one of two options. There's either A, there's the nihilism that just says, well, forget it. There's nothing I can do about it anyways. And this is just my lot. Or there's the other side that says, now that I know that these outside influences have helped me and shaped me and formed me in the way that I think, now I can actually review those outside influences Mm. to see if those Mm. need to be replaced with others, right? Yeah. And I I think that's the harder thing for most people to do is to recognize how do I take these, how do I kind of critique, reevaluate all those things that have shaped me to who I am with a real seriousness and openness to the possibility of other outside influences that might shape us? Yeah, I, I think what we're brushing up against here is a conversation about conscience. How does, and, and I, I was talking with a friend about this just a couple of days ago, I think we need a distinction between conscience and the voice of the spirit that conscience is is for is as i'm using the term and you can use the term in different ways but just for the sake of conversation when i say conscience what i primarily mean is your internal moral sense your your sense of right and wrong your sense of good and bad your sense of appropriate and inappropriate that you've internalized because of the outside forces as you're calling them yeah. around you. Right. They're not, it's, it's a little misleading to call them outside because they're very much inside you. Right. Right? I mean, you've very right. much internalized them, but, right. but what we mean is you've been acted upon, right? Yes. People have said things and done things and not said things and not done things. Stuff has happened. And the, the upshot of all of that is somehow it's led you to feel good about that, bad about this. And to be drawn to that and repelled by this and to sense that is lovely and this as disgusting and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. You've got a kind of internal moral sense. The voice of the spirit is never simply identical with that. The spirit can work with it and the spirit can work against it. The, the spirit can cut across it. So think about like the rich young ruler in scripture, his moral sense is wildly at odds. It's running in the exact opposite direction of the voice of God. So that's why when he he meets Jesus and Jesus says, sell everything you have and give to the poor and come and follow me, he goes away sorrowful because his internal sense is, I'm doing everything I should do. I'm like a step away from the kingdom. And he thinks that Jesus is going to affirm that about him. Right. At least on one read, that's what's happening. But then what Jesus does is essentially say, you haven't even started. You're not one step away from the end. You're one step away from starting the, the race. Like you, you're not even in the game yet. And he turns and, and goes away. And Jesus doesn't say that meanly. I mean, we're told he loves him. Like Jesus loves right. him. Yeah. But he's, he's completely lost. Like he's completely morally, he's completely adrift. Right. And you can see this with Paul, like on the road to Damascus, his moral sense is very clear. Yep. And then he encounters Jesus and realizes I was completely turned around, turned inside out. Right. And, and so on and so on. Lots of examples like that in scripture. This is, I, the problem is those of us who are raised in the circles we're raised in, the kind of Christian circles we're we're shaped in, we do start to think the voice of conscience is the voice of God. And 
So we never grapple with what happens when you've internalized voices that are untrue, right? Hmm. With or, or voices that are te- teaching you half truths, right? And 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 so on and so forth. But I, the reason we don't despair is that we believe in the voice of the spirit. We believe yeah. that that it doesn't all come down to whether or not my conscience is right because right. God is God, right? And I'm not left hopeless because there is a living God who acts and can speak to me in ways that alive in my conscience or, or crucify it that make, as with Paul, as with the rich young ruler, there can be moments of truth where I come up against a reality. Now the mystery is what's going, what am I going to want in that moment of truth? Hmm. Like why is it that the rich young ruler had that moment of truth and at least for a while walked away from it? Now we don't know how the story ended, Right. Maybe he circled back. Right. In fact, there for a long time, there was a teaching that that rich young ruler was Paul and that <laughs> the rich young ruler is the when when Jesus says in Acts, you know why it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, that that was a callback to like those earlier encounters with with Jesus. I mean, that's speculation, but yeah. Regardless, we don't know what happens with this man, like this synagogue ruler, what, where, what happens down the road between him and God. But with Paul, when he had his moment of truth, he responded like he, he, he turned to Jesus. Yeah. And, and that's a mystery we, you know, we can't quite get inside, right? We have our theological accounts of it, but it, 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 it does come down to somehow between you and God personally, in those moments of truth, something is happening that I can't quite get at fully. But that's why we don't despair. Is that yeah. kind of no no matter how lost we are in terms of what we've internalized, the voices we've internalized, God can find us there. Like it's not, it's not, we're not completely at the mercy of bad teaching or I mean, God calls Abraham in the midst of his idolatrous nation. Yeah. Right. I mean, that God can find us wherever we are. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really helpful kind of pushback to that as well, that maybe sometimes the, it's kind of odd to say, but the nihilism is actually the draw of the spirit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the very thing that we kind of want to resist, everything is meaningless is actually somewhat like our, uh, our, our uh, teacher, right. From everything is meaningless. Absolutely. Right. You, I do think you have to have, I mean, uh, Martin Laird has a great article on Gregory of Nyssa's spirituality. And he talks the way Laird reads Nyssa is that essentially the Christian life is a progress from Proverbs through Ecclesiastes into Song of Songs. Right. So on this account, you know, Proverbs is like naive certainty. You think, you know, things you don't actually know. Yeah. And maturity requires a wilderness experience in which you come to, oh my gosh, I don't know if anything means anything, right? Like I don't go up from down or in from out. And that it's at that point when you've kind of come up against your own emptiness, your own sense of failure. Okay. Now Jesus can visit you, right? Like now you're ready for the the real conversation and Mm. that can open out on, on real intimacy. And I think that there's something to that for sure. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of that and a lot of spiritual formation and spirituality, right? The, the being broken, the actual not coming broken, but needing to be broken 
And oftentimes it's needing to be broken from our own manufactured spirituality. Absolutely. I would say, I would say virtually that really broadly speaking, there are two things that have to be broken from you. One is if you've been oppressed and abused, then you've internalized shame and you're traumatized in a particular way. And what has to be broken off from you is all of that violence. Yeah. That's what we call deliverance, or that's a a way we try to name some aspect of that. That's actually much easier to deal with than if you've internalized religious or moral perfectionism. Mm. And the better you are at it, the harder it is to free you from it. Right. So like the, the most successful folks, and this is again, the rich young ruler and Paul, both of those stories are about this. They're not the abused ones. They're the abusers who think that their abuse is the righteous act of God. And those are the hardest people to save, right? Like those are the people that it's hardest to get to. Yeah. Because the, you know, they, they, they've lost the ability to discern the voice of God as something distinct from their own voice. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a miracle when, when one of them turns. And this is why Jesus, you know, is constantly saying like the tax collector, the prostitutes, they're going to go into the kingdom long before you folks do, right? Yeah. <laughs> because their, their brokenness, while very real, is relatively easy to heal compared to the brokenness of a Paul or a rich young ruler. Yeah. Which, if we take that analogy really well, right? There's much to be said, not Jesus to the world, but Jesus to the church that we often ignore and redirect, right? Absolutely. Those critiques are often mainly for us, but we use those same critiques against those who are not, right? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. For sure. Chris, I think this has been helpful. I think we've kind of decompressed. We, we went on a long trajectory, right? <laughs> Starting from oneness and D.D. Jakes yeah. to, again, how do our minds change? Nihilism, the work of the spirit being broken in order to be built, right? Like yeah. all of this long trajectory, which really has so much to do, pretty much everything. If if I kind of sum up everything, it really has to do with spiritual formation. like. Yeah this reality of being formed and how are we being formed and all of these kind of areas played a key part in that, or at least spoke to that formation or lack thereof. Um, but you've got a, a new, new thing that you've been writing because we do need to wrap up here. Uh, tell everyone about kind of your, the new place that if they want to follow along with what you're doing, that they can go uh, read more thoughts from you. Oh, Oh yeah. 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 So I, I've been bandying this idea around, Oh man, a year and a half, probably. It just took me a while to get to it. So I'm, I'm going to, I have launched a, a sub stack, which is a, like a subscription service for a blog, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, you know, people can sign up for free. They can sign up for a monthly, like I think $7 a month. They can sign up for a year. There's a membership. So far I've got two, like, founding member sign up, right. which is, which is cool, which is just friends trying to help me out. Um, I'm making some changes on other fronts in terms of income. So this is just a way of making sure that what I'm writing, that I have time to do it and 
that yeah. I'm still paying the bills, you know, while, while I do it. And so, you know, if, if people would sign up, it'd be great. If you got time and, and interest in reading about it. what I'm doing, the plan right now is to do three or four posts a week, um, a theological essay of some kind, a reflection on the coming week's lectionary reading. So just, just today I released a podcast. Well, it's not really a podcast, just me talking about the readings for Sunday in the lectionary for, for those who might preach. Yeah. And then fielding kind of questions from the audience, right? What are, what are things that people have questions about and trying to answer those questions? So I, my plan is to kind of do one of each of those each week. So kind of theological essay, some reflections on the, on the sermon texts and then questions from the audience. And then maybe every once in a while, another, you know, I, I'm whatever I'm writing at the time, book or paper, whatever I may share some of that. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a way of um, yeah. Making up some income that I lost on another front and also focusing my attention so that I actually do write it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the, that's the plan. So where can they find it? It's cwgreen.substack. Perfect. And it's called speakeasy theology, which is, you know, a play we we've discussed before, but that's the, that's the name of the blog. But if you just go to cwgreen.substack, you, you'll find it. Perfect. My friend. Thanks. Thanks for promoting it. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I mean, everyday theology, speakeasy theology, we're hitting on something, right? Absolutely. Oh, that's Um, exactly right. And we're, uh, you know, it's, um, it's not, obviously it's not for everybody, but it is, it's a way of holding me accountable and making sure that, that I'm not being neglectful in terms of my responsibilities to, for, to, to my family and stuff. So that's the trying to, to, what, to use a very violent image, kill two birds with one stone. (laughs) Well, let's not kill any birds unless it's a Turkey coming up soon. Okay. Um, We'll do, we'll do those. Hey, Chris, thanks for taking the time, man. We'll be back with everyone next week with, uh, I think some interesting, you know, more interesting interviews coming up. Absolutely. Enjoy Charleston.